How to Play, Episode 38, Rex. Hello and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Western New York. The How to Play podcast is all about learning and teaching games. In each episode, I provide a full explanation to help you learn and learn to teach another great game. For more How to Play episodes, special episodes, teaching guides, our discussion forums, and to help support the show, visit our website at www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Also, be sure to visit our affiliated podcast on the Dice Tower Network at dicetowernetwork.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and I am back today in the How to Play studios, motivated and excited here to do episode 38, recording it on July 8th, 2012. And that is no coincidence that it's July 8th because today was the deadline for the summer fundraiser. And I am blown away and so thankful for the support. I threw that goal out there. I had no idea whether I was going to get that kind of response from you of 100 supporters to donate to the show at least $10. And you did it. You made it happen. You responded to the call. We got just over something around 108 or so supporters all around the world. So, so I'm going to give a shout out to start each of these episodes with a thank you to the How to Play supporters. The sponsors for this episode are my international listeners. We had about 30 international supporters from 11 or 12 countries. My favorite international country from now on is the United Kingdom. Thank you, Kenrick, Brendan, Holger, Poria, Oliver, David, Stuart, and Greg. We have a tie for my second favorite country, Australia, with Lee, Mark, Christian, Stuart, Danny, and Toby. And Canada with Shane, Darren, Gordon, John, Kevin, and George. Apparently, I'm huge in Tasmania and Alberta. Also, big thanks to Flovis in Belgium, Yannick in Switzerland, Laurent in France, Thomas in Germany, Brian in Ireland, Federico and Matteo in Italy, Sjord and Mark in the Netherlands, and Diego bearing the weight of the entire continent of South America in Argentina. My Asian, African, and Antarctican listeners have a lot to answer for. Next time, I expect you to step up, Antarctican scientists. So season two is funded. We're funded to the end of the year, episodes through December. Thank you very much to all the supporters. I'll get to my American supporters in future episodes. Supporters only were sent a survey with the right to get to choose episode 39. If you want to help choose the rest of season two, go to the how to play request list. I'm really looking at that list for the games I'm choosing from now to the end of the year. Uh, Games need at least 30 thumbs to show some significant support. And if they don't get those shortly within the next couple of months, I'm going to cut those off the list because we have lots of games there. I've already taken a few off just due to personal preference. So just go check out the request list thumb, all the ones you want to see by the end of 2012. Also, a big thank you to Mike Pivanen for volunteering as the official announcer on Board Game Geek. He also completely updated the How to Play Geek list. It's all up to date and looks great and consistent, cleaning up the dead links from my old feed and just making sure those are all working and you should be seeing posts from him as announcements to new episodes. Those are official How to Play posts Thank you very much, Mike, for taking that on. 
and always apologies to anyone's names that I accidentally mispronounced. But now let's get to today's game. I'm very excited to talk about today's game. Today we're going to talk about Rex, Final Days of an Empire. Rex is published by Fantasy Flight Games, who generously provided a copy of this game to me at my request. This game, although it just came out in 2012, is actually a very old game. I was very excited when it came out because I've been waiting years to play it. I've heard legends of this game for a long time as a classic game, and that is because this game, Rex, is a re-implementation of the original game, Dune designed in 1979 by famed designers Eberly Kitteridge and Olatka, also known for their work with Cosmic Encounter. And Fantasy Flight actually had the rights for quite a while, and they actually really fought to try to have a, a Dune licensing, but that became quite a struggle. And so in the end, they decided to retheme it with their Twilight Imperium Universe theme. It was developed by Corey Kineska and John Goodenough, which I thought maybe was just a, a pseudonym, but actually that, that's a real person, John Goodenough. It's a great last name, especially as a developer. And, you know, they'll say, hey, John, how's that game you're working on? It's good enough. This game just came out, as I said, here in the year 2012. It says on the box that you can play it with between three to six players. I've played it with five or six, and it worked well with both of those. I, I think you could play it with four or five, but really, actually, truthfully, you want six players for this game. Just due to the nature of the game, a lot of partnerships you develop. You can develop uh, allies with one or two other players. And if you have five, it doesn't just work out as nicely. Four, there's just not as many people in three. Uh, it just seems like it would take a lot of that fun part of the game away from it. So you could play it with less, but you really are hoping for six players with this game. It takes about three to four hours to play, I say, with a question mark at the end because of the ending condition of getting a certain number of spots on the board. This could happen very quickly or it could take the full length. So I could see it taking anywhere between two and five hours, but probably around three or four. So why did I select this game to talk about? What do I love about this game? This game feels very similar to me in Game of Thrones. It has a lot of parallels to that game if you've played that game or listened to that episode. The players have territories on the board and they're trying to get a certain number of special territories in order to win the game. But this game fulfills that void that I felt was sort of missing and that I was hoping to get from Game of Thrones. You know, in Game of Thrones, if you've read the books and you know anything about it, it's all about these, these families, you know, working together and then splitting up and, and backstabbing each other and turning their back on one another. And I thought that that would happen a lot more in Game of Thrones because it has that support mechanic where, you know, two families team up and and help against one other family. In practice, it doesn't really happen as much as I wanted it to. This is the game that sort of fulfills that partnership diplomacy conflict game. In this game, you start on your own, but at certain points you can team up. And then later on, you could switch partners. And I really like that aspect of the game. You really can work together with someone in this, in this combat game. 
I like the diplomacy and I like that teaming up aspect. But the thing that I have to say I most love about this game is this game has variable player powers. Now, what you might say, Ryan, big deal. Like half the games out there have variable player powers. Like half the games I have have these roll cards. And it's like, no, you don't understand. There are games with variable player powers and there are games with variable player powers. This game with each of the different roles, it's almost like playing a different game because of the massive changes that each race brings to the game. And it's very thematic and, and fantastic. It makes me want to play the game six times because I want to play each of the different races in the game. It's got a cool battle mechanic. This game really has a nice thematic feel, but it also has interesting mechanics and, and decision-making. So it fills that niche of, if you want a game where you can sort of get into the world of that game. I love the characters represented by the races in the game. I like the setting. It really feels like a science fiction game, whereas a lot of the games I play are a lot of the times sort of cube pushers and you really can't get into that theme. In this game, it's hard not to get into the theme, as well as having it paired with some very good and interesting mechanics. So what's not to like about this game? Well, you know, the downside of that is this is not really a pure strategy game. Yes, it is strategic. I think, though, Number one, it's a thematic experience. And number two, it's a strategy game. Because there are some very swingy elements to this game. One of the, the largest of those is uh, a traitor card mechanic. That you can just be dominating someone. And if they have one particular card, they just happen to get it at the beginning of the game. They can flip that over and you can lose your whole army. And if you have a serious gamer in your group and this happens to them they will hate this game. I would probably warn people about that, that this game is a little swingy. It is a thematic game first and then a strategy game. So I think maybe a little awareness on that up front may help prepare people for that. Also, if you have people who just want to win on their own, it's kind of hard to win by yourself in this game. You sort of have to enjoy that partnership aspect of teaming up with someone and winning as a group. And lastly, I think there's probably a, a solid group of people who will say, yeah, you need to get Dune because it was the Dune theme and, and the Dune story just matches that game so well. Well, yes and no. I have never played Dune, to be honest, and, and I can very much see how some of the characters in the Dune universe could match up with those different factions, and that would be very interesting. And you've got sandworms, and you've got spice as your currency, and that would be very neat. But to be totally honest, they did a, a very nice job of incorporating that within the theme. I did not miss the Dune universe at all. I have read the books, but I was just as happy with the characters and the setting and the way that the story felt to me. It did, as I say, really feel like a story, and I could get immersed in that theme even though it was not the Dune universe. So, no, it's not Dune, but it's still a pretty snazzy theme. 
Complexity Rating. This game is a black diamond. It's probably going to take you at least 30 minutes to explain the game. So there's a significant amount of rules. Uh, and you're going to want people who like games and want to get invested in the game. But it, it's not incredibly complex. There's not a, a ton of rule exceptions. And the rules feel very straightforward. It has this sort of clean classic game design feel you can almost feel that it was designed over 30 years ago just because the rules although there are quite a few rules they feel very straightforward i think part of that was a nice job done by fantasy flight of sort of streamlining this game although i'm i'm just assuming that because i haven't played the two games i'd love for someone to come on the guild tell me the you know the differences specifically between these two so let's get into our hook meat and hamster at the end i'll talk about different player counts and uh, a really neat optional rule that's in the game as always i recommend having that game in front of you or look on the web to get a visual look at the the components and the game board all right let's get to the hook <laughs> Part 1. The Hook. What the game is about. The capital city of the universe is burning. The humans have finally had enough of the oppressive rule of the Lazax Empire, and they have revolted. The humans of Seoul have attacked Mechatol City itself in an attempt to overthrow the tyrannical Lazax rulers. This is the time for an opportunistic race to seize ultimate power and become the leaders of the galaxy. You will play one of the six major races of the galaxy present in Mechatol City during this revolution. Either the humans from Seoul, the defending Lazax Empire, or one of the other four factions who have been lying in wait for an opportunity such as this. You will represent one of these six strong people. The Federation of Soul, those pesky humans with their notions of freedom and self-importance. Yeah, Soul rules. S O L, S O L. We are awesome. The Emirates of Hakan, lion people who do what lions do best: trade and sell merchandise. Jetpacks, jetpacks for sale. Jetpacks, get your jetpacks. They're great. The Barony of Letnev. Humanoid people recognizable by how sneaky and creepy they look. Excellent. Our plan is coming together perfectly. <laughs> the Universities of Jolnar. A race so smart, they must separate their super smart brains into jars. Your stupidness offends us. <laughs> the Zacha Kingdom. An adorable, wise turtle people with thick shells and psychic powers. Dude, we can like totally see into the future, and sometimes it like messes with my head and stuff. Or the Lazax Empire. The evil overlords with vast sums of cash and impressive giant killing robots. Everything is under control. Repeat, everything is under control. We will get more into each race later, as your race selection significantly impacts your capabilities in this game. But first, we will focus on the basic rules of the game, how to win, and how a turn works. 
The game board of Mechatol City is divided into 28 spaces, divided by what we're going to call roads that connect one space to another. During the game, players will add units to these spaces and move their units to different spaces and then fight to have control of them. Five of these spaces that are basically in the corners of the board and marked with a red star icon are the most important spaces in the game. These are called strongholds. The game is played to a maximum of eight turns, with each turn involving players adding units to the board, moving their units, and fighting if they have units on the same space as an opponent. The game ends immediately if one player is able to control three of the five strongholds at the end of the turn. Now, during the game, players will be given an opportunity to form alliances at specific points. Now, a two-player alliance can win the game if they control four strongholds. Or if you have a three-player alliance, you can win the game by controlling all five strongholds on the board. And the player or alliance that is able to meet those victory conditions will become the new rulers of the galaxy. Part 2. The Meat. How to play the game. So we're going to start by looking at the most important things that happen on each of these up to 8 turns. So here we go, the basics of a turn. In a turn, there are several very important things that we do. I would say the first most important thing that we're going to do is we're going to bid for these strategy cards. We're going to have auctions for, say if there's six players, we're going to have six cards up for auction, and we're going to bid the money in the game, which is this influence, until all those cards are gone, and then we'll move on. The next major phase is you can get back any of your units that have died, and this is called recruiting, and again, you spend that money, which is called influence in the game, to get your guys back. And then is the critical step of maneuvering your units, and we do this in turn order. This takes place in two steps. You can move some units and then place some units, but you can only do like one stack of each. So you're going to choose one space on the board and move all the pieces that you want into another space on the board. Only do that once. Then you can place as many of your units that you have in your stock onto the board onto only one space. So your movement is very limited. So all the players will take turns doing that. Then anywhere where there is more than one person on a space, they're going to have a fight. Those are the most important elements of the turn. At that point, at the end of the turn, we'll see if any single player has three strongholds, and then they would win. Or we had a, a partnership who had four, or we had a group of three that had all five of the strongholds. If not, we pass the start player marker, and we do it all over again until someone wins or eight turns are gone. Next, let's look at the most critical components in this game. First of all, let's talk about the board. The board is basically 28 circles connected by lines. The circles are called spaces. They have different names. We've got the Salar slums and the cultural sector. Under the name, it will have at least one icon underneath it, maybe more. It may have a green circle. That means that it is shielded. It's shielded from nuclear bombardment. How do you get nuclearly bombarded? Well, we'll talk about that more later. Next is that stronghold red star. So there's, make sure you know where these areas are. There's five areas on the corners of the board. They're the object of the game to take these five areas. Interestingly, all of these strongholds are shielded. 
Now, if an area is not shielded, it probably has an influence icon on it. That means that these spaces of the board may randomly get influence pop up on them. Influence is money. So the game tempts you to go to these areas that are not shielded to collect money and hope you don't explode. One of the spaces in the center is called the Galactic Council. And the Galactic Council is nice because nobody fights in the Galactic Council. They just all go there in the middle to grill hot dogs and sing Kumbaya together. The other thing that's important is the spaces have a sector number. There are 18 sectors for 28 spaces. So each sector includes either one or two spaces. So sector one has two spaces. Sector two is just one space. Sector three has one space. So just note that difference between sectors and spaces. The money in the game is called influence. There are these little circular tokens and they have numbers on them, one, two, four. You'll get to start with some of those. You'll need to spend those to take a lot of the actions in the game. Your troops are on hexagonal chits. These are the pieces you're going to put on the board. They're in your color. They mark that you have a control in a section. And the more troops you have in a section, the better you'll be able to fight there. The next important component is the strategy cards. These are poker size cards. They have like brown backs. And you can play these in different phases, like the combat phase or the bidding phase. They all tell you when you play them and they give you a special ability. You'll be able to bid influence to buy more of these strategy cards. And lastly, you'll have these rectangular leaders. And these leaders never go on the board. You just select one of these each time you get into a fight. Those are the most important pieces you need to know about right now. Now let's get to the turn in more detail. So now the turn actually has seven phases. Let's go through all of them and what happens in them. The first phase is called the influence phase. We have this deck of cards called the influence deck. In the beginning of each turn, we're going to flip over one of those cards and it's going to tell us two of the spaces on the board that gets a certain number of influence. We'll see where that space is and we'll just put that money in that space. As I said, they're probably not shielded. So it's just tempting people to go there to go pick up that influence. And it might also start a fight if two people decide to go there and try to collect that money. The next phase is the bidding phase. So hopefully you have six players playing this game. Then we have six cards that are bid on. Similarly, if you had four players, you would bid on four cards. Now the interesting thing about this bidding is it's face down bidding. So we, we just count out six cards. We put them face down. We point at the first one. We say, all right, we're bidding on this. We have a start player represented by a start player token, and they begin the bid. We're bidding influence tokens on the right to take that card. Minimum bid of one. You just go around and players have to up that bid or drop. Whoever bids the most pays their bid, takes the card, and then we start with the next card. Now, since there's six cards, the bidding for the second card starts with the player after the start player. So in this way, you have six players and six cards. Each player will be given the opportunity to start each bid, which is kind of clever. A couple things, uh, you are maxed to a hand limit of four of these strategy cards. You actually start the game with one. So if you get a few more, you may not be able to bid anymore. Another important note, is if all players pass on a certain face down card, then this bidding phase is immediately over. All the other cards get 
thrown away. So even if, say, this was the second card that came up and everybody passed, nobody bid on it, either because they didn't want to or they were maxed out on cards, then you just take those cards, shuffle them back in the deck, and bidding is over. Phase three, recruitment. It's called recruitment, but it seems more like resurrection, I guess, because at the beginning of the game, this uh, there'll be a basically a Deadpool box, and you can buy your guys back with influence. So at the beginning of the game, there's no one there for you to recruit. Later in the game, there probably will be plenty. You do this in turn order. Each race gets a certain number of guys back for free based on which race that they are. Then you can buy more. Each token that you buy back costs you two influence apiece. And combined with your free and the ones that you buy back, you can only buy back up to a total of five, which is a really bummer because you might have like 10 or 15 dead guys. You can only get up to five back a turn. You can also buy one leader back. There's a way for leaders to die in combat. And if they do, you have to buy them back for the number that's printed on the leaders. Most people have a, a variety of numbers. You might have a one leader, two, three, four, five leader. If your four leader dies, if you want to buy him back, he costs four influence. Max of one leader per turn. So that's recruitment. Now it's, it seems more like resurrection to me. Next, maneuvering. This is very important and it's very limited. First, you're going to get to move some of your troops on the board. And to start with, almost all the players have units that start on the board. So to begin with, you can move one stack of troops from any one space and move it to any other space that is up to two spaces away following those roads. You can move through other places. Know that if you stop where other players are, you're probably going to end up with a fight unless you're in the Kumbaya Galactic Council. Where are you going to move to? You might move to launch an attack on those strongholds. You might move to where that money dropped in or stage up for a fight in a future turn. But remember, it's only one stack from one space to one other space. It's very limited. Then you can deploy the units you have in your stock. You start the game with quite a few units in your stock. Now I'm going to tell you, you are not required to deploy all of your units right away. And in fact, it's probably a good idea not to do that because they're kind of hard to get back once you put them on the board. And they're also, it's very limited how to move them around. So really think about where you want to deploy and how many of those you want to deploy at the beginning of the game. Deploying or putting your units on the board is not free. It also is much limited like the movement. You can only deploy all the units you're going to deploy in a turn into one single space. There can be enemy units there. There could be your unit and enemy units. You can plop down wherever you want to. If it's empty or friendly, it has only your units in it, then it's one influence for each token you drop down. If you drop it where there are any other colored units other than your own, you have to pay two influence for each unit token. So that's maneuvering. Uh, the person who has the turn order marker to go first is going to do both of those two steps first. They're going to move a stack they have on the board if they want from one space to another space. Then they're going to deploy units to a space if they choose to, paying influence to do that. Then it's time for battle. If there's any space where there's more than one color unit in that space, we're going to have a fight. We resolve the battles by going in turn order again. The person with the start player marker will start by resolving any battles that they have. And in reality, you'll probably only have one or two, maybe three battles on the board. So there won't be too many to choose from. 
But that's how you pick the order. The start player picks anyone they're involved with and chooses the order. Then the next person in order chooses the order of ones they're involved in and so on till you've done all the battles. Let's talk about how a battle works. Say I was the human player and we are awesome. I was I had the start player marker, so I have to resolve my battles first. I have a battle against the turtles. I, I attacked the turtles in a space that had some influence on it. Dude, dude, this isn't cool, man. Just we're just hanging out. So first thing you do is you report which is just basically declaring your public information. So they say how many they're attacking with, how many of those strategy cards they have, and show them your leaders. So I'm the human. I say, all right, I'm attacking. I've got eight tokens attacking. I've got one strategy card in hand, and I have all of these leaders available. The leaders have a different range of numbers on it based on which of the six races that you are. Most of them have a leader one through five. And players have a player aid with the numbers of the leaders that all the other players have. And then the turtle player would announce, okay, I have five unit tokens there. I've got one strategy card in my hand and I have all my leaders available. Then we get to use what I like to call the wheel of fun. And the Wheel of Fun actually was pioneered in Dune and was have been moved on to be used in several other games, which is basically a simultaneous uh, wheel selector for players to make a decision. And the, the wheel of what you're deciding here is how many of your troops are going to fight and die in the battle. So I'm winning eight to five. I may only want to send six because any number that I send are dying, win or lose. So I decide to spend six. Now the turtles, the turtles are behind. Now here's one thing you really need to stress to your players. If you lose, all the guys in that space are going to die anyways. So you need to spend as many as you think that you need to spend to win. There's no sense saving people if you don't think you're going to win. So it doesn't make a ton of sense for the turtles only to spend just one because then they know they're going to get clobbered. If they lose, the other four are going to die anyways. So the turtles are going to send all five. Of course, they're going to do that secretly with their little wheel of fun then there's two more decisions you have to make there with your wheel of fun with this battle is you're going to choose which of those leaders you have and as i said you have some different strengths maybe the human chooses a leader of strength three because they don't want to use up their best one then they're going to decide there's four different places to put that leader four little sockets and where you put it shows uh, which cards you're going to play in this battle which are your strategy cards there's attack cards and there's defense cards there's also a circle there that just says minus. So you're either going to put your leader in the slot that says minus, meaning I'm not going to play any cards after we show how much strength we have. I'm going to put it in the attack slot, meaning I'm going to play one attack card. The defense card, I'm going to play one defense. Or the attack and defense, meaning I'm going to play an attack and a defense. So I have an attack card, so I'm going to put my leader in the attack slot. So then we reveal and we show our decisions. The humans had sacrificed six tokens and they used a three leader. So I just add those up. My battle strength is nine. The turtles sacrificed all their guys, which is five, and they added a five leader. Five plus five is 10. The turtles are winning currently. 
10 to 9. Then I said I was going to play an attack card, so I'm going to choose that card that I have that's an attack card. The cards have either a red circle or a blue shield on them to represent attack or defense. You are only allowed to play one of each type in a battle, so if I had two attack cards, I'd have to choose one of them to play. I happen to have a biological weapon as an attack card, and that destroys the opponent's leader in battle. So I get to blow up the King Turtle there. He dies, he goes to the Deadpool, so he can be bought back sometime. And now the score is 9 to 5. The humans have been successful. Yeah! Soul rules! But remember, we have a lot of death anyways. Of course, the turtles lose all their guys. They lost the leader because of the weapon. Normally, leaders are not lost in a battle unless a card kills them. The humans still lose the six guys that they spent. But remember, I had eight there, so I get to keep two guys left in the space to hold the territory. Next, strategy cards. If you win, you can decide to keep the strategy card. I can keep that biological weapon and use it over and over and over again as long as I keep winning. I can choose after I win to get rid of that card. I may want to do that because I'm at a hand limit and I want to thin down my hand so I can get some more cards. Otherwise, I'll probably want to keep it. The loser, if they played a card, they have to discard it. And that's it. That's how battle works. You say how much you have, how many cards you have. You get your little battle dial. You choose how many of your guys you're sacrificing, and that's what you're doing. You're sacrificing. You're picking your leader. You're putting them on the slot that says what card you are, you are or not are not using. You show the dials. You pick your cards. You figure out who won. All the people, all the strength that you used have to go in the dead pile as well as all of the losers tokens in that section will go in the dead pile. The winner may keep his strategy card, the loser has to get rid of his, and then the battle is over. Now what if there is a tie? Interestingly, ties are broken by turn order, and that can be very important. So no going in, that's probably a situation report thing to click in your head. I have the tiebreaker or I do not have the tiebreaker. Whoever is, is closer to the person with the first player marker will win the tie. And remember, this is very important and very important you stress to your players before the first combat. Anything you commit with your dial is going to die. However, all of the losers, other troops in that space are going to die anyways. The only troops that are not going to die is the winner's troops minus what he spent. So you should spend as much as you think you need to win the battle because otherwise they're going to die anyways. So that's how battles work. And as I said, you probably have maybe one, two, or three battles each turn. So you'll take care of those. And then it's time for the collection phase. Every player gets two influence, which, as I said, is the money in the game. Each player gets two of those for free. And then, if you have any troops on any spaces that has the influence on them, they can collect some of that influence. They are limited by the amount of troops that are there. Each single troop can pick up two points of influence per turn. So let's say I was the humans and I survived that battle. There were six influence tokens on that board, but I only had two surviving humans. Each human can pick up two points of influence, so I can only pick up four of those influence. I have to leave the other two there. If I want to stay there, maybe I'll be able to pick that up next turn. So each player gets two, and you look on the board, and each troop on a spot with influence can pick up up to two per troop. And the final phase of the turn, nuclear bombardment. 
Remember when I was telling you the story about how the humans are wrecking havoc and revolting? Well, they brought this gigantic fleet with lots of nuclear bombs, and they're just moving around the city in a circle, bombing the heck out of it. Yeah! Soul rules! Generally, it's a good idea to stay out of the way of the nuclear bombs. The fleet starts in a, a random sector determined at the beginning of the game. From there, at the end of the turn, the Dreadnought fleet is going to move a random number one to six spaces from the sector that it is in. So everybody knows this. They've got this fleet of death on a certain spot in one of the 18 sectors, and it's going to move up to six spaces, but you don't know how many. Actually, excuse me, up to six sectors. And it's going to blow up anything in its path from where it starts to the sector that it ends up. And if you remember, sectors can be one or two spaces. So if it lands on a sector with two spaces, you're just going to sit that giant dreadnought fleet, which is like a cluster of five ships that's big enough to sit on both of those to show that that's where the dreadnought fleet is. Remember those shielded spaces? All of the strongholds are shielded, as well as a few other sections of the board. Things do not die in the shielded sections. But the bad news is, is that fleet of death is going to stop at a certain sector. Wherever that fleet stops, it's going to lock down that area of the board. Nothing can move out of that section, and nothing can move into that section while that fleet is sitting there. So this fleet of death gives you something to think about as it's just, it's sitting there on the board. You know it's going to advance, but you're not sure how far. So you typically want to stay out of the way. Even if you're the human player, the human fleet of death will blow you up without mercy if you are in their path, regardless that you are their friends. Yeah! Soul rules! So that's it. That's the turn. After we blow everything up, then we can check to see if someone has one single player having three strongholds, two player alliance with four, or a three player alliance with all five strongholds. The main phases of the game, we flip a card to put more influence on two spaces, we bid on strategy cards, we buy back our dead guys, we maneuver, meaning we move a stack on the board, and we can deploy another stack to the board, then we have any fights, we collect influence, everybody gets two plus whatever they're on. Then the fleet of death goes one to six spaces. We see if someone has won and we do it all over again until someone wins or we have completed eight turns. There's just a few more rules to this game that are very important. There's one key element of battle that just throws this wrinkle and just is there to sort of stress you out. And that is the element of the traitor cards. I mentioned this earlier at the beginning of the episode as being a very swingy and uh, a little bit random element of the game, but it certainly also adds excitement. At the beginning of the game, you're going to be dealt four traitor cards. There will be a traitor card in the deck for each of the leaders in the game. So each player has uh, five leaders. So if you're playing a six-player game, you would use the full traitor deck. If you're using less players, you would take out the players that you weren't using. So you take that deck of 30 cards, you deal four to each player. 
Each player would have four random ones. They might have some of their own leaders, but they're going to want to pick one of the leaders from one of their opponents. Probably a higher value one, as those are the ones typically people want to tend to use, the ones with the most strength. So you will take one of those and put back the other three, and those will be shuffled back in the deck. There are ways to get extra trader cards. And you're just going to hold on to that just in case you need it. This is one leader of an opponent that you have in your pocket. And you're going to keep it there and hope and hope and hope that you get into a battle with that person and they play that leader. For if they do, then it's very big happiness for you and much sadness and horribleness for them. So if you have their card, and say you get into a battle, you get your dials all set up, and then you have to wait till they reveal their dial. And if they reveal the dial that you happen to have the one card for, you flip over that card and you laugh maniacally. <laughs> battle over, they're sad. Their leader dies, all their troops die, and you get the battle without having to sacrifice any of your guys as well. You get to keep all of your guys. You are very happy. Uh, that that trader card actually gets shuffled back in the deck, um, but you are sort of out of trader cards unless you happen to get another one. There are a few cards that allow you to maybe get one more, um, but generally you only get one shot at it. You know, you might want to target that person because you have their card, but you still have to get lucky that they use the card that you actually happen to have. And that's just a, a word of warning. Be aware of that. A person might have that card, so that might be a reason to use one of your lower value cards or to know that even if you're uber confident in victory, there is that still that one wrinkle that can take out all of your troops. So just be wary that that is a possibility that you could get traded. Another key element of the game is there are two special influence cards. I mentioned at the beginning of the influence phase, we flip over one of the influence cards, and usually it just has two spaces on it, and you put influence on those two spaces, and that's it. But there are two special cards in that deck, and actually there's four of them. There's four cards called Soul Offensive, and there's four cards called Temporary Seize Fires, and there's only eight influence cards, so there's actually a 25% chance of a soul offensive and a 25% chance of a temporary ceasefire every time you flip a card. So what do they do? Those good people of soul, they just, they can't get enough of blowing people up. So that's what these cards do. They blow more stuff up. Yeah! Soul rules! The soul offensive is kind of a mean and nasty card that attacks where influence was just placed. So, say on turn one, we have some influence that's placed on sector 10 and sector 1 gets some influence. If on the next turn a soul offensive card comes up, what that does is the humans attack those two particular spaces that uh, influence was placed on in the previous turn. So it's kind of cruel. The game baits you into going to those spaces to uh, get that influence, but there's a 25% chance that this influence card will flip up called soul offensive that will kill everything in those two spaces. So it is a risk to go after the influence that's just placed on the board. The other influence card that's special that can come up that's a very important card in the game is Temporary Seize Fire. 
And what temporary ceasefire is, is it triggers a negotiation phase. When this card comes up, you are then allowed to talk with the other players in the game to make alliances. So you can make a two or three player alliance, assuming you have five or six players. You're also allowed to bribe other players to ally with you with influence or just give them uh, because they're part of your alliance and you want to give them some of your influence to help them. When that card comes up, you cannot officially form an alliance until this card comes up. And it's possible that this card could never come up and so players would never be able to form an alliance. It's very, very unlikely, but it is possible. You're also stuck with that alliance until another one of these cards comes up, now, which might be the next turn, it might be three turns, it might be never, which is really an interesting mechanic that you have to wait until these ceasefires come up to either make these partnerships to pick an ally or two allies, as well as to break. If you get stuck with a, a horse that's not helping you at all, you're stuck with that person until this card comes up. Similarly, it's very interesting if you have one of these cards come up and the players partner up, and then in a couple turns another one comes up, players often reevaluate and dump their uh, partners if they're not helping them out at all. Very interesting. I like how that works, that they can't just do it on their own. They have to wait till this specific timing element. So you have an ally or two allies. What does that mean? What can you do with your allies? Well, uh, one of the advantages of being an ally with someone is that you give them part of your special powers. And we'll talk about what your special powers do in just a bit. But you have an ally card, which is a mini version of at least one of your special powers. And when you ally with someone, you give them one of these cards and then they can use that and it helps them in the game. Also, of course, it alters your victory conditions. If after the ceasefire, you have one ally, then you need four strongholds to win the game. You cannot win the game by yourself anymore. If you get in a team of three, then your team of three has to get all of the strongholds. Now, are you allowed to sort of team up? Um, can the two of you work together and both attack another player who's not in your alliance? No, not really. You can, say, have one of your, your ally attack first to weaken them, and then you can attack later. However, you may not end your movement on the same spot as one of your allies, because the only reason you do that is to fight. And since you're allies, you may not fight. So being allied, you get to give a mini special ability of your powers to your ally. Uh, you have to meet that new victory condition, which is generally a little easier than winning it on your own. But you cannot be on the same spot and you can't work together in a battle. So now that you're working together, how much can you talk about? Well, there are very strict rules about secrecy, what you can keep secret and what you cannot. And I think they're perfect. I think it's really smart to include that in the rule book because players would def definitely play with that as far as, you know, what can I say, what can I do? So once you have a partnership, you're going to want to sort of work together. The rules in the rule book state, and I heartily encourage that you follow these rules, is that any discussions of strategies or plans must be open and take place at the table. You and your ally may not get up and walk away and you know come up with your secret plan. If you're going to discuss something, you must discuss it in the open. Also means you can't get out a piece of paper or your iPad or text message to your ally. That is illegal. 
makes things much more interesting. Also, secret information, you're not allowed to show the cards. If you have strategy cards, if you have trader cards, if the game allows you to peek at something, you can say what you have, but you may not show it. And the reason for that is because that way everyone at the table is not for sure if you're telling the truth or not, or whether you're just bluffing. And that adds to a whole lot of fun, just like in the game Werewolf. You can say whatever you want, but you cannot show the truth of hidden information. And you may not walk away and talk about things. Very important rule and really adds to making the game more fun. So I very much encourage you to use those secrecy rules. But that's about it. That's the whole game. That's how the turn works. That's how you win. Those are all the important rules, except for the very interesting abilities of your races. So finally, let's get to the six races of Rex. All right, so as I said at the beginning of this episode, this is probably like my favorite part of the game is the uniqueness that each race brings to the game and uh, just stepping outside the explanation this is what i would do if i was explaining this game do not get in or spoil the fun of the uh, different superpowers of the different races until you explain the base of the system it'll help all the players just sort of get a, a basic idea for what they're doing and if you keep cutting in with all these exceptions that's just going to confuse them if you give them the base system of rules and then throw in the exceptions one they will have a clear understanding of the game but two, you'll just get this wow factor once you explain the differences between each of these uh, six wonderful uh, groups of people. All right, so let's get into it. First of all, they all have some basic differences. I mentioned each of them have a, a free recruitment level. So it's between one and three. Number of free guys they get back each turn that are dead that they don't have to pay for. These are troops, not leaders. They have different amounts of influence that they each start with. Also, they have a different starting position. Basically, four of them start in four different corners of the board. Uh, the turtles start in the center, and the Lazaks, who were surprised, do not get to start with any units on the board, but they got plenty of stuff to roll out. Let's get to those six races. First of all, the Barony of Letnev. These people I like to describe as the sneaky, creepy people because they just, they're normal humans, but they're blue and they look creepy. Excellent. <laughs> and their abilities are kind of creepy. Remember how all the players got dealt four trader cards, but they only got to keep one of them. Well, the creepy people get to keep all four of their trader cards. Hooray! Also, they get double the strategy cards of anyone else. What do I mean by that? Well, they get to start with two instead of one. Whenever they win a bid for a strategy card, they get to draw another strategy card from the deck. And instead of being maxed at four cards, they can have eight strategy cards in their hand. So the Letnev always have lots of evil toys at their disposal. Let us utilize the mechanical hound. No, let us use the killer bees. No, no. Let us use the mechanical hounds with the killer bees in their mouths. And when they bark, they shoot bees at you. <laughs> and their final special ability is that whereas most people, when they move a stack, they can only move two spaces on the board. 
Well, there's two very important strongholds that have a spaceship on it. These are called spaceports. And the Letnev are lucky enough to control a spaceport because they control the stronghold that has that spaceship icon. As long as they hold that spot that they start with at the beginning of the game, then when they move, they can move four spaces instead of the normal two. If they lose it, someone else could get that ability. But that's a strong capability to have. They can move very quickly. Next, the Universities of Jolnar. I simply refer to these as the brains in jars. They all laughed at our pathetic physicality, but now that we've attached our bodies to cool mecha warriors, now who who is the one who is laughing? <laughs> because they are very smart, they have very intelligent abilities. Here's a nice twist. Remember how I said that all those strategy cards are face down and nobody knows what they are? Well, not really. The universities of Jolnar are so smart that they do know what they are. Right before each bid, they get to look at each one of those strategy cards. And so not only is it fun for them because they get to know what it is, it's fun for everybody else because they get to look at what reaction they get and look at the reaction of their bid. Also, how nobody knows where that influence is going to go or if one of those seize fires or soul offensive cards are going to come up. The Jolnar, before they move their troops, can look at what the next card of the influence deck is. Also, they use their intelligence in battle. They have a great strategic mind, so they can predict what you are going to do. When you have a battle, before you all make your decisions, the Jolnar can ask you to tell you either which leader you're going to play, or if you're going to play an attack card, what it is. Or if you're going to play a defense card, what it is. Or what strength you're going to use. And he'll choose one of those. So he'll say, tell me what leader you're going to use before we pick our dials. And that's a huge advantage. Or you'd say, tell me what attack card you're going to use. And if you say, well, I'm not going to lay an attack card, then you're committed to not playing an attack card. Forcing them to give up that information is a very strong strategic advantage. And finally, the Jolnar also have the other spaceport in the game. So as long as they control that stronghold with the spaceport, when they move, they get to move four. So those are the Jolnar. They are smart. <laughs> so some have tactical advantages. Some have knowledge advantage. Some have military advantage. The Lazaks... The empire everyone is trying to overthrow has, of course, an economic advantage. Everything is under control. So remember how we said that we were having these bids with these six cards, and, you know, so everybody might pay two or three or four for each of these five or six cards? Well, whenever you win one of these bids, your money doesn't go to the bank. You may notice I didn't say that. Your money goes directly to the evil empire of Lazax, which means they're going to have a huge pile of cash to spend on cards. And when they buy cards, then the money goes to the bank or on buying back more troops or deploying troops to the board. Also, I didn't mention something about gigantic killer robots. Well, all the other races have 20 troops to use throughout the game. The Lazaks have 15 troops to use throughout the game. They also have five gigantic killer robots. Their killer robots, instead of just counting as one, the killer robots, each killer robot counts as two. 
So this gives them a, a nice combat advantage. The disadvantage of that is if they die, they can only buy back one of these robots a turn. They take a while to build. But when they're on the board, they can certainly cause some devastation. The monkey men shall be beaten severely. Everything is under control. Our giant robots of awesomeness will punish them properly. Repeat, everything is under control. End of transmission. Resume serving your Lazax masters. The downside of the Lazax is because they were surprised by those pesky humans, they do not get to start with any troops on the board. But they make up for it with their huge pool of resources. Speaking of the pesky humans, let's talk about the humans from Seoul. Yeah! Seoul rules! The humans are indeed pesky. Several races can only move two. The humans can move three. Remember how we talked about that Seoul offensive card where when it flips up, it blows up the previous space? Your units cannot be blown up by this particular card. In fact, it's good to be on this space when that card flips up because if they attack that space, you may move your troops to one adjacent space. It gives you like a little bonus move if you want to. However, remember, you can still get blown up by the Dreadnought Fleet of Death. So those big ships going around the board, you are not protected from them, so you need to steer clear of them. Yeah! Soul rules! However, you do have walkie-talkies, so you do know how far they are going. Remember we said they move a random number of spaces, one to six? Well, that you'll have six cards, one through six. You'll shuffle them up, and but you'll get to look at the top card. So you'll know how many sectors that they will go, and then you'll put it back down. After each bombardment movement, you shuffle all these cards up again. So each time it has a random number of spaces to go, one to six. And the humans know, though they can't control it, they know how many spaces the Dreadnought Fleet of Death is going to move. They also have their sort of uh, attack headquarters. Since they've planned an attack, they're just going to be streaming out troops like crazy. This means... When they deploy, they get to deploy for free. That means influence isn't as important to them. However, they only can deploy to one corner of the board. 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, which is sort of the northwest corner of the board. They can deploy anywhere they want in that corner, and it's free, but they can only deploy to that corner. Lastly, they want to control that side of the board. On that side of the board is the Imperial Palace, which they have taken over to start the game. And they also want to control the other stronghold, which is in the southwestern corner called Mechatol Power South. And so those are uh, the two strongholds on that side of the board. And if at the end of eight rounds, if they control those two spots or no one controls them, then their attack has been considered a success and they are considered the winners of the game they have a special victory condition so they can stall out the game as long as they continue to control that side of the board they need to control two strongholds by the end of the game two specific ones on the western side the imperial palace and mechatol power south and if they do that then they are the default winners yeah soul rules we blew the heck out of this place! Yahoo! SOL! 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 We are SOL! I think that's kind of ironic, guys. Let's just chant soul instead. Soul! Soul! Soul!
Yeah! I like to blow stuff up. Next, the Hakan. The Merchant Lions. Jetpacks. Jetpacks. You know you've always wanted a jetpack. Jetpacks. Jetpacks for sale. Who wants a jetpack? You, you ma'am, you want a jetpack. The Hakan Lion Merchant's power in the galaxy stems mostly from their monopolization of the sale of jetpacks. Literally. Whenever anybody wants to land on Mechatol City, they have to use one of the Lion's jetpacks. Brilliant. They're like the Microsoft of Mechatol City. Because do you remember how whenever anybody plays troops to the board, they have to pay one per troop, friendly or empty, or two per troop into an enemy-controlled area? Anytime anybody does that, the money does not go to the bank. That influence goes to you. So you typically have a lot of influence. Because all the other races have to pay you to deploy their troops. Not us! We brought our own jetpacks! Soul rules! Oh yeah, okay, forgot about that. Also, you can use one special ability during the maneuvering phase. You can deploy at half cost. Or, instead of deploying, you can do a super teleport move. You can move one stack of units to any space for one influence per unit that you move. It is certainly good to be king of the jetpack. And lastly, we all know who wins if war lasts a long time, and that is the businessmen. And that is why our merchant friends, if the game lasts eight turns, and Seoul does not control their two western strongholds, if all those conditions are true, then the Merchant Lions, the Hakan, are the default winners of the game. So the Hakan may play a strategy just to stall the game, make sure Seoul doesn't control those two strongholds, because then they win. And lastly, my personal favorite, the Zhicha! Yes, the Zhicha! They are uh, adorable giant turtles. They are so cute and friendly, but fierce when cornered. Hey, 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 microphone dude, I'm hungry. Because they have psychic powers. Dude, we can like see things, man. Sometimes, sometimes I see things and I don't know whether they're things or they're not real things. And it's, it's like wild, man. One of their psychic powers is to command an opponent in battle not to play a particular strategy card. So you have all the cards listed on a player aid and what they do. And if you're scared of one of them or you want to stop someone from protecting against a card that you're going to use, you can command them not to be able to use one particular card. Next, whenever any other player other than you deploys, they choose to deploy, you get a baby turtle. And that baby turtle goes to the Galactic Council to sing a song of Kumbaya before it launches its next attack. Oh, dude, you see those baby turtles over there? Those are adorable. Dude, you're a turtle. I am a turtle. I bet when I was a baby, I was adorable because those baby turtles are adorable, dude. So if you're playing a six-player game, uh, it's possible you could get five of these free baby turtles every turn. The problem is you don't move so fast, so getting these turtles out to where you want them to go. 
Their next special ability is my favorite. They can, of course, go into their shell. Right before the battle phase, you can take any of your units on the board and flip them face down. And if you flip them face down, then you're sort of invisible there. If you're invisible, then nobody fights you. You don't control the section, but you're there, so you can stage up for a future attack. You also can, on the next turn, you can flip them back face up. So at the start of each battle phase, so after everyone is moved, you can choose any of your uh, turtles to flip face down into their shell or flip face up into attack mode, which is a really fun tactical ability. Sometimes, like, all the lights and the people and the talking and the stuff, it makes me a little, you know, crazy. So I gotta just, just hang out, man. And their final special ability, which is the coolest special ability in the game, is that they have a special way to win the game. How they do that is, uh, after you've got everything all set up, the turtles get a special set of counters just for them. One set of icons for the five other races in the game, and another set of tiles numbered one to eight. They're going to pick a player, for example, maybe the Lazax, and a number one through eight, say four. And so now I have predicted that the Lazax player is going to win on turn four. And if that happens, then instead of them actually winning, I get to win because I predicted it. Hooray! Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> if you're saying it's not fantastic, then this may not be the game for you. This is, it's kind of, it's a game where you got to get into some of those goofy, quirky elements. I love that. I think it's great. So, you know, obviously what you can do is you can try to help that player win on that turn, even ally with, you know, the player that you have winning on a certain turn. Although anybody you ally with will probably be suspicious of uh, you predicting something. You know, you could ally with the lion and try to stall the game and steal the win from them that way. It adds a lot of fun little choices. But that's it. Those are the six races. Won't you agree that they add a lot of fun? I can't wait to play with the other ones I haven't played with yet. You've got the sneaky people with lots of traders and lots of cards. You've got the smart people who get to look at the strategy cards, command and battle. You've got the evil empire with piles of cash and giant robots. You've got the humans that can just get lots of guys and keep throwing them on the board and try to control that corner of the board. You've got the lions that got lots of money and can try to stall the game out as long as possible. And you You've got the turtles who can command opponents, make baby turtles, and possibly win based on a prediction they made at the beginning of the game. Awesome. You know everything there is needed to know to play a game of Rex. All that's left is thinking about how you're going to win. Part 3. The Hamster. How to win the game. Alright, to be fair, I've not played this game a whole ton yet. It hasn't been out that long. But I've learned a few lessons, and so I will try to share with you what I have learned. One of the key components to doing well in this game is using your resources. And your two major resources are the influence that you have and your unit troops. And really using them wisely. It's very easy to 
blow them and especially your troops and be out of them by turn one or turn two because you maybe did some things a little bit hasty. So let's talk about that to start. First of all, your influence, the amount of money that you have. You start with a decent bank to start with. Most of the races do. And really consider how you're going to use that because you're only going to get two guaranteed back. And if you're one of the four poorer races, you're going to need to fight to get the, the other influence to get on those spots with the influence. If you're one of the other two uh, races that get tons of money, then, then you don't care. You'll just generate it automatically. Think about what you need the influence for. There's three places you need it for. Bidding on cards. Don't blow it all on bidding on cards because you need it to buy back guys if you have dead guys, but also to get your guys onto the board. So if you spend all your money on, on buying cards, you're not going to have any money to get your guys down. And just in general, if you're out of money, there's very little that you can do in the game because you can't get more cards, you can't buy your guys back, and very importantly, you can't get your guys onto the board. So if you drain yourself, you kill all your guys, and you run yourself dry of money, you can almost effectively be eliminated in this game. So be careful of that, especially if you're not one of the two, the Hakan or the Lazaks, that just make tons of money. They don't need to have to be as concerned about getting knocked out of the game. Next, as I said, it's very easy to blow all of your troops right off the bat. At the beginning of the game, you basically have all of your troops available to you to, to drop down. Uh, some of them are on the board, some of them are in your stock ready to go. Remember, before you march into battle, if you lose, all of your losing troops will die. So if you're bringing in half your stack, be sure either you're going to win or, you know, or those consequences are worth it because it's going to take a long time for you to build back into it. Remember, you can also get traitored to death, all of your guys, as good as you think they are. So really think about that risk before you take it. And also do the math. Do the math to think, is it even mathematically possible for me to win based on the strength that I have and the leaders that I have available? Can I get more than he can? And don't forget about those strategy cards that can either knock out your leader. There's also a strategy card that can get plus three. One thing we didn't talk about really was how those strategy cards work. Four of the most important are two of the attack cards that knock out your leaders and two correlated defense cards. So we talked about how there's like a biological weapon. There's also what's called an atmospheric ionizer. And it says right there, if someone plays a biological weapon, the atmospheric ionizer cancels the biological weapon. And then there's two other ones that do the same thing, the energy rifle and the energy shield. And so there's almost like a rock, paper, scissors effect. If I play this one, then does he have the other one? But there's also what's just called a mercenary, which can add three. There's also a tactical retreat, which allows you to just sort of take your guys back into your stock so that they don't die. Most of the cards, most of the strategy cards affect combat. There are a few other ones that are sort of interesting. Some of them that let you get a lot more guys back and guys back for free. Uh, ones that prevent people from bidding on strategy cards. So there's a few extra things thrown in there. Most of the strategy cards affect combat. But I would just really encourage you to consider before you throw a bunch of troops at risk, recruitment is slow and expensive and troops on the board are power, especially troops that are in good positions. So really be careful with your troops that are on the board. The other thing I've learned from playing this game the first few times is that think before you take the units on your stock and put them on the board. 
you do not have to, and you probably don't even want to, take as many of the troops that you have and dump them on the board. Because once they're there, they have to move around on their own, especially if you don't have those spaceports. It takes a long time for them to get from place to place. And sometimes it's easier to get them on the board to just dump them on the board. So think about maybe saving some of those troops to deploy in a following turn, because once you get them on the board, they're hard to move around. So that's the number one thing I would urge for you, is to use your resources of influence and troops wisely and really think before you spend money or rush those troops into danger or place those troops in a spot. Make sure that that's a good decision. The next thing seems obvious, but it's something you have to keep in mind. Winning the game is about taking strongholds. Most of you will start the game holding one of those strongholds. Do what you can to hold on to that stronghold. If you don't have one, get one as soon as possible and, and protect it. And then plan on how to control more. So if you have, you know, having two is a very good position. Getting three to win the game is very difficult, but not impossible. But no matter what, try to hold on to one of those strongholds at all times, and the, your whole game should be planned around, how am I going to get to strongholds? You might have to set up a two-turn attack, but you need to be thinking about, how am I going to get my next stronghold or hold on to the strongholds that I have? The reason that's so important is because when those ceasefires come up, if you do not have, and, and this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, if you do not control a stronghold, or if you don't have any good board position, you've burned out all your troops, or you don't have any money, no one's going to want to ally with you. Or if you have an ally, they're going to dump you. And this is what I've seen commonly in this game, is that when those ceasefires come up, the strongest p players, the players with the strongest board position, will band together and, and take over the game. So you want to get yourself in that good position to be an attractive partner so that you can get to that final push to win the game. So those are my recommendations to you. Be careful how you use your resources. Make sure to think about how you spend your money, how to use your troops. Don't throw all your troops in the trash. Beware that traitor and focus on at least holding one stronghold or trying to hold two because that's going to put you in that position to win the game by negotiating with, with a partner. I think it's possible to win by yourself, but more likely you're going to win by uh, choosing a strong partner when that ceasefire comes up and being the rulers of the universe. So I hope you have fun as much as I have enjoying this game, enjoying all the six different colorful races in it, and have a great time. <laughs> Part four, footnotes. So a few final footnotes. Uh, I mentioned that the, the fleet goes on a random space. It's kind of weird how they have you do that. You pick a random start player. Each player on either side of that start player picks a random number on a battle dial. You check the difference of that, and the difference of that is the sector that it starts on. There is some errata that comes with the game that uh, is not in the rulebook. You're just looking at a PDF of the rulebook, so be sure to check out that errata. Uh, there's uh, important rules, mistakes that were made in the original rules. 
There's also in the rulebook, there's some really good clarifications on uh, some of the tricky bits about some of those superpowers. Some of them can have, you know, some strange things that can happen. And so the clarifications are pretty good there in the rules. If you play with less than six, the game is really set up to play with six. If you play with only three or four, you're going to knock out one of the strongholds. So there's only going to be four strongholds. You can only have a two-player alliance. You can't have a three-player beat on one. So then the most, you could either have one player take three, or you could have a partnership uh, take all four because you knocked out the, the lower left corner of the board. They also have suggestions for which races to drop out depending on number of players. Sadly, the first to go is the turtle, which makes me really sad, but that's beside the point. I have played five players, but then you get this weird three-on-two thing happening. Really try to get six. I really recommend uh, best with six. Lastly, I would be remiss if I didn't mention these really neat betrayal cards that came in the, in the game, and I think this would be a really very fun option. Uh, what happens is there's eight of them, numbered one through eight, and they each have a special condition on them. And you play the game as as normal, uh, but each player kind of sort of tries to go after this special condition. They're very different. One of them says that you have more people in Galactic Council. One of them says you have the least dead guys. One of them says um, you control more spaces than your allies. One of them says you control more strongholds than your allies. So you're kind of going for this secret condition if you can. And then what happens is at the end of the game, normally this game is won by a group of two or a group of three. They put out their hands, and if they decide to shake hands, then the game is over. If one player reaches for his what's called betrayal cards and flips them over, then all those players flip over their betrayal cards. And if someone has met their condition, then they win the game by themselves. And they are numbered because the number on the cards represents how hard the victory condition is. And so the person with the highest number who has fulfilled the hardest of the victory conditions will win the game. I really like this option and I want to use it next time. The only thing that's preventing me is um, I really want to have a player aid available for all the players to see um, because once they're hidden and if you don't really know what they are then it kind of I think it makes things trickier whereas if you knew what the possibilities are of especially of the things higher than your card then I think that would make it a little bit more fun because you can make decisions based on if you've met the conditions if you think your your ally has met the conditions um, but I, I think it's a great brilliant idea and I really want to try it out but I I think a player aid isn't necessary I'm hoping actually requested on BGG that someone make it but I I think it's a great variant of the game and I want to use it next time but that is all for me for this episode. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I'm so happy about the support, again, that I got from all of you around the world, especially for our sponsors this episode, our international listeners. Uh, big thank you out to the, the great listeners in England and Canada and Australia. And my supporters received a survey to vote on the, the game for episode 39. We have one with, with a pretty good lead, but who knows? Anything can happen. So look forward to that episode in August, and uh, hopefully I'll find time for it because those of you who are loyal listeners know that I have a uh, some a special event 
coming up shortly, any day now. Uh, hopefully, it won't happen till after you've listened to this episode, and I'll have had a chance to edit this podcast. That uh, our second child is coming any day now, so uh, we're so looking forward to that. It's a very exciting time in the Sturm family. And again, I can't thank you enough for all of your support for my work here on How to Play. But for now, I'm going to turn the lights off here at the How to Play Studios in Western New York. From the How to Play Studios to all of you listeners, especially to my How to Play supporters, thank you so much. If you'd like to support the show, feel free to. Your donation will count towards uh, the, the production in 2013. Just go over to my website at howtoplaypodcast.com. But for now, I'm going to sign off. Have a great month of July, everyone, and we'll see you in August. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play podcast. That wraps up this episode of How to Play, but be sure to visit us on our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, for all the How to Play resources, to discuss the show, to contact me, or to show your appreciation for the show with a PayPal donation. I count on your support to help keep How to Play growing. If you use and love the How to Play podcast, I need your help. Show your appreciation by making a donation, spread the word about the show, and just let me know what you think about the show there at the Guild. Thanks again to you, the How to Play listeners around the world. And until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Hey, hey, dudes, dudes, like, we should all just chill out and, like, hang out and we could, like, start a fire and I play the acoustic guitar. We could sing some Joni Mitchell and have some marshmallows and it would be awesome. Woo! Barbecue campfire! I'm grilling. We got all these bombs. We could explode afterwards. What are you drinking, turtles? You know what makes campfires even more fun? Jetpacks. Jetpacks. How about everybody? How about a jetpack for everybody? Yes. Yes. I will take a light beer, a polar sausage, a marshmallow, and a jetpack. <laughs> Marshmallows are delicious. Uh, guys, I, I, I gotta get home. I'm playing this MMO and I'm on like level 37. Yes, it is agreed. You should all sit here and make food and be happy to serve the Empire. Everything is under control. It's not going to be under control for long, because in Seoul we know how to party! Dude, I like to party too. I, I don't really like parties. Kumbaya, my Are we gonna sing or what? Hey, look! A baby turtle! Hey, Turtle Man, you know this one? I'm proud to be Solarian, where at least I know I'm free. A baby turtle is pretty cute. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anybody who made it this long, God bless you.